All of us come from somewhere. Many of us, but not all, were born in this country. Many of us, but not all, have ancestors who were not. Many of us, but not all, know the stories of those people, have heard their stories handed down over generations. All of us come from somewhere. This morning, I have invited members of West to share their stories of immigration, to share what they know about how they or their ancestors came to this country. Some of them have funny stories, and some of them have hard stories. We're going to hear now from a few of them with a little bit of music in between, and then we'll have a chance to share our own stories this morning. I'd like to start by inviting Nancy McGuire to come and share her story with us. Well, this is a story that's been handed down in my family for a lot of generations, and I, maybe some of you have heard it before. And um, there's not a lot of official records, especially for the first part of the story, but we've got some amateur genealogists in my family that have checked it out as best they can, and um, their conclusion is that this probably did happen the way it was told. Um, the story begins in the early 1700s in Italy, in a town called Ravenna, which is in the northeastern part of Italy um, on the seacoast. And it has to do with a family uh, with the last name of Longino. And uh, they, were, they were fairly prosperous and well-respected. And depending on who's telling the story, they might or might not have been sort of low-level nobility. We're not quite sure on that count. But um, by all reports, everything was going along just fine until they did something really dangerous. And what they did um, was that the, the parents in the Lungino family um, started to follow the teachings of a traveling clergyman by the name of John Thomas. And we don't know if he was English or if he was American. He was an English-speaking person. But he was, uh, he was spreading the ideas of Protestantism. And yeah, <laughs> gasp is right. Uh, <laughs> he, was, he was saying that a lot of the things that the Roman Catholic Church was doing were wrong or misguided and that the Protestants had a better way of doing things. And the Lungino family agreed with him. And um, they, they liked him so much that when they had a baby boy, they named him Giovanni Tommaso, which is Italian for John Thomas. Um, it was a very dangerous thing to be a Protestant in Italy because the Roman Catholic Church was working hand in hand with the government. And so if you broke a church rule or if you spoke out against the church, you could actually be arrested and put into prison or even killed. Um, and, and you could even just have an idea that the church didn't like, like if you would say that the earth uh, revolves around the sun instead of the other way around. Um, I, I think Galileo got himself in a bit of trouble for that. Um, so eventually, the, the Roman Catholic Church caught up with the Longino family, and they said, you know, you really have to give up these wild and outrageous beliefs of yours, and they refused. And um, Giovanni Tommaso's father was actually executed as a heretic, and possibly his mother as well. There again, it depends on who's telling the story 
We don't really know the details. We do know that, that Giovanni was about 14 years old at the time, and uh, he went into hiding, and possibly he took his brother with him there again, and we don't know what happened to the brother, but we do know when things settled down a bit, um, one, one night when nobody was watching, Giovanni went back to the family home, and uh, he, he went into an armoire, and he got his father's dress coat, dress um, jacket that he used to wear for special occasions. This is a very special coat. It had large buttons covered in cloth. And Giovanni knew that these buttons were actually gold coins. This was his dad's emergency fund. And he took that coat, he got the buttons, he got the gold coins, and he began to sell them one at a time and get some money. And that's how he paid his way uh, first to Switzerland. We think that uh, there's a family called Longine that makes timepieces, watches, and clocks. We think this is a branch of the family. He may have spent some time with them in Switzerland. And he eventually went to England, and he didn't stay very long because what he wanted to do was come to America, and he wanted to find John Thomas because he knew that John Thomas would take care of him. And remember, this was a 14-year-old boy. Um, and so he got, from England, he got onto a fishing boat, and he may have had to work his way over to pay his passage. There again, depends on who's telling the story. Um, but he, he landed at Portsmouth, Virginia, and he made a 300-mile trip to the county of Surrey in North Carolina, where he found the Thomas family. I have to look at my notes here. Um, and it wasn't too long after he arrived in America that he changed his name to John Thomas Longineau. And we don't know exactly when the pronunciation of the last name changed or why, but uh, my, my family today, they, they pronounce it Longineau instead of Longino. But uh, anyway, he arrived in North Carolina, and sure enough, the Thomas family took him in, taught him how to speak English, um, got him kind of up on his feet, and uh, to the point where he was prosperous enough by the 1770s that when the American Revolution broke out, um, he loaned money to North Carolina at 6% interest to help finance the war. <laughs> um, yeah. And he married a woman named Elizabeth, who may have been the daughter of John Thomas. There again, that was one of those iffy things. But uh, they, they had a very happy family and very happy life. At, uh, at various times, he served as a tax collector, a sheriff, a justice, a land commissioner, and a constable. So they didn't specialize too much back then, I guess. <laughs> but um, John and Elizabeth had 10 children. And those children had children, and those children had children. And eventually, one of those descendants was named Elizabeth Lenore Longino. And she married a man named Eugene McGuire, and they had two daughters. One of them was Linda McGuire, and one of them was Nancy McGuire. I'm really happy to do this because when I wrote out the story the first time, the way I knew it, I took the opportunity to check it through with a cousin who had more intimate uh, experience with my grandfather and so uh, was able to fill in a couple of details. And if I didn't have this opportunity, I would have never done that. So I'd like to thank you all. But that's the way family myths and stories are. 
Um, my grandfather was a deserter from the Russian army. Um, he had been drafted into the Tsar's army as a, as a teenager. He's from a Jewish family in Latvia. His father had been a peddler who had traveled from Latvia to Poland and all points in between with his peddler's cart, often camping out with the gypsies. By the time my grandfather was 10, he was traveling with his father, and a few years later, when his father died, my grandfather took over the peddling route. My grandfather thus spoke many languages, Yiddish, German, Russian, Polish, Latvian, and Romanish, the language of the gypsies, and probably several more that I do not now remember. As a teen, he was a man of the world, a bit of an adventurer, who lived far beyond the restrictions of the Jewish community. Thus, being drafted into the Tsar's army did not create the horrors that it did for most Jews. He already lived outside the community, and the kosher rules did not tightly limit his food choices. He was drafted in the late 1890s. He was a drummer while serving in the Caucasus, protecting the Russian borders. This took him a little beyond the edge of his known world, but it still was familiar territory. In the evenings, he played dominoes with the local people, learning the numbers in Turkish, and other, other Turkish he also learned at that time. He was a teenager enjoying his adventure. He enjoyed his relationship with the local people. His rancor was reserved only for his officers, his own officers. Several years passed and he was home on leave. He was ordered back to duty for the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. This was way beyond his known world. He was not interested in going. He used to say that he thought of taking the new Trans-Siberian Railroad, which was built in the early 1890s, well, through the 1890s, out to Siberia and settling there and getting lost. The railroad was creating new settlements in the East the way that in our country it had done in the West. But then someone sent a ticket home from America to a cousin of his. This cousin could not get up the courage to leave Latvia. My grandfather knew of people who had previously gone to the United States, so this territory was far more familiar than Japan and Asia. So in 1904, he took the ticket and came to America under the, under the name of his cousin, Cohen. Not until the 1930s did the family get together and standardize their name back to the original Carol. So not only did my grandfather leave Russia as a deserter from the Tsar's army, he entered the United States on false papers. <laughs> like most of you, I had two grandfathers. The other one also came into the United States on false papers and a ticket made, made out to someone else. Perhaps this is why when I learned that someone else has entered the country undocumented, my deep emotional responses, welcome to the United States. May you find as good a home as here as did my grandparents. Thank you so much. And now Lilo will come and share a little of his story with us. Well, thank you very much. You know, uh, I feel like at home. Thank you. And this is, I don't know how many times I've been at the Washington Ethical Society, but uh, briefly, you know, I, this is my 30th anniversary in this country. I came in 1981. You know, uh, as I'm a Salvadorian, uh, I was, uh, you know, uh, I, I left my country because the whole uh, uh, political and social situation at the, at the time, I had to leave, you know. If not, you know, I couldn't be singing 
with you. I've been with you today. You know, there was a lot of, uh, it's a lot of uh, violence in my country. You know, uh, I was an elementary school teacher, and, and many of my friends, you know, had been killed at the time. So I had to live with my first wife, with my mother, and my son. Uh, Lilito, he's Lilito. Uh, uh, he's 32 now, you know, but he, he's 32. And he played music too. He's, he played rock. Yeah, he played rock, you know. Uh, so next time, I will bring the whole family. Uh, <laughs> the whole family. And, you know, it was, I came, I left uh, my hometown. Uh, it was Friday morning. I slept in Guatemala. We got to Guatemala and slept over there for the first time, you know, in like in five years, the first time when I slept peacefully because I was, I never slept in my hometown because I was also the worry, you know, every night that somebody will come and break the, uh, the door and, and came in and, and take me away. So for the first time, I slept very well. The next day, we went to the border of uh, uh, Guatemala and Mexico. And from there, you know, we took a bus to Mexico City. It took us like two days, you know. My son was two and a half. Five hours, like half day before we get to a Mexican City, you know, my son got an a, a, a infection, you know. And, you know, he was just, he was two and a half, just, you know, buying the stuff from the, from the side of the, of the bus, you know. So he was with a big infection. We were very worried. But luckily, you know, he, 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 well, he made it. We got uh, some water. We got to Mexico City. And with no money, we went to, the, uh, to, a, uh, to a doctor. You know, when, he, when, we told her, uh, when we told him the story about us, he didn't charge anything. He gave us medicine, so he got fine, you know. So we stayed for a week in Mexico City. And from there, we took a train to Chihuahua. And in Chihuahua, there was a family expecting us, Doña Rosita. You know, uh, uh, there was a Mexican family, beautiful family, and stayed for like four days over there. My son was better, you know, and from there, they put us in a train to Ciudad Juarez, you know. We got there very late, and uh, there was a guy waiting for us. His, his uh, nickname was uh, El Diablo, the devil. So he was waiting for us, you know. He took us to the, uh, a motel in El Paso, and the next day in the morning somebody came and we w walk up, uh, take us to the border, you know. We walk, it was like uh, the Rio Grande, the big river, you know. It was small there, you know. I just jumped, you know. My, my creek in my hometown was bigger in, in the far, you know. But we crossed, and on uh, and, and, and the other side, they were waiting for us in the van. They wait for us. They took us to a motel. We spent like two days in the motel. No food, nothing, you know. And I didn't know that the, the owner of the motel, he was part of, he knew that we were there. So I was worried. Finally, you know, I said, well, I had to go because my kid, he, well, everybody went, was starving at the time. So I went out and I saw a big sign of McDonald's, you know. <laughs> you know and a friend of mine gave me a shirt from Georgetown University, you know. And I said, well, wear that, take a shower. And I went out, you know, and I bought a, some papitas, Coca-Cola, and a hamburger. Yeah. At, at, at night, the coyote came from Los Angeles, from El Paso to, uh, to Los Angeles, like 17 hours. So my, he sit 
he came with a Malibu. I remember it's a Malibu, a big Malibu. You know, he put my mother in front. You know, she was with glasses. Uh, oh, oh, you know, white hair. My uh, my wife and my kid, they put it in the back and they put me in the trunk to me. You know, uh, because I was suspicious. You know, so and and we just drove and he said this is going to be just for an hour or two hours while we get farther from the uh, from the border you will come out and i remember you know that he stopped by in a gas station and this kid you know, from the neighborhood they were in bike you know drinking some i can see uh, and, and listen they're drinking some coke you know and buying some uh, popsicle you know and, and i was sweating inside you know but finally you know we got we were off uh, far from the border i came out and i sit with my wife in the back and 17 hours later, I was in Los Angeles, you know, on April 15, 1981, you know. But, you know, but that, that, that's one part. And after that, you know, I met my, my wife in Washington. And again, I've been here at the Washington Ethical Society since 1980. And I remember Casey you know, Horowitz, you know, and playing the piano with him and Lucy Murphy, uh, a beautiful, you know, African-American uh, singer, uh, and we're here, you know, playing. But today, as I promised you, I, I wanted to bring my family. This is Anina. She's five years, uh, six years old. <laughs> Camilo, he's 12. You know, he's in middle school. We live in Tacoma Park. And next time, I will bring my, my daughter. She's uh, 15. She sings too, and she plays. Oh, she's going to turn 15 in August. Is that <laughs> and, and my wife, you know, that I met her in Washington. You know, my wife, she's a Salvadorian, but her mother is, uh, is from German. So her father is Salvadorian, her mother is from German. So as uh, you may see, we are a rainbow, you know. <laughs> you can tell, you know, and, and that's why, you know, it's important. It's important to work every day hard to make this, this world a better world, especially for our children. And the last thing is to tell you, the last time when I was here was in, was in, in December. And I remember Amanda was saying uh, that the, the, the they were talking about border. And she was saying, how many borders have you crossed? Uh, you know, how many are you going to cross again? And I was thinking the border that I was crossing, you know, the Mexico, Guatemala. But at the time, I was preparing to go to the Middle East. I went to Cairo, you know, in December. And that's something amazing, you know, because thanks to the music, you know, and my friend, you know, I had a friend at the time, he was teaching, he was teaching uh, 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 in Cairo, uh, jazz, you know. I met him 25 years ago. He, he was a college student, he was, uh, you were playing together folk music. Now he has a PhD in music, so he was teaching there. So he said, Lilo, can you come? And I said, well, I would love to. And I went, and let me say briefly this thing, you know. He's a Jewish, a Jewish, judio, you know. You know he was teaching in Cairo. And we have a common friend who was living in Lebanon. He's a Palestinian. So when my friend Palestinian knew that I was coming, he said, I had to go to Cairo. His name is um, uh, 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 Mutaz Eldajani. And he was going in 1983 or 84, he was going to George Washington University. And my friend, uh, David Marcus, he was going to Georgetown. You know? and, and that's why through the music we played together. And this time, you know, I was, it was amazing. Because I, I, I got to El Cairo, it's 18 million people, 18 million. And I asked my friend, David Marcus, uh, David, because Mutaz was coming at noon. I want to go and walk. And I said to him, 
Do you have any concern with my security? He said, no, you can walk wherever you want in Cairo. This, you know, and let me just say something. I'm a, as a Salvadorian, it's a violence. There's a lot of violence in my country now. In my hometown, 5,000 people. After 10 o'clock, I cannot walk out. But my hometown was like Cairo 30 years ago. What was, you can walk, and I can walk wherever I wanted to go anytime. Nobody will hurt you. So what's going on? You know, I was amazed. So I started walking in Cairo by myself. Even I gave the camera to one. I don't know this guy. He gave my, you know, my car. Hey, can I take a picture of me? So he took a picture of me with a Nile behind me. You know, you cannot die in my country. So again, again, you know, violence. But, 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 and I've been asking what created this violence, you know. It's sad. So thank you again. You know, this is some story I want to. Go back to the Middle East one day with music. Well, I sang and I played there. I, I, I went to a daycare and I played singing the song Grey. They were hopping, hopping, hop, 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 and dancing. You know, music brings people together. You know? So thank you very much. Thank you. I'm moving our microphone up now because Jeff Mehal is going to come and share a story from his family. Well, I thank you, Amanda, for uh, graciously adjusting the microphone. I'm going to tell the story about my mother's parents, George and Elsie Fossold. George Fossold was born in Hamburg, Germany in 1894 in the Altstadt, the old city down by the docks. He was born into a life of grinding poverty. And so at about age 12 or 13, in order to get out of that, he signed on uh, with some of the shipping lines that served Hamburg as an apprentice seaman slash cabin boy. And the runs that he made were basically from Hamburg up on the Baltic Sea, uh, south uh, down through the southern Atlantic Ocean around the Cape of Good Hope to serve what used to be known as the German colonies in East Africa. Um, he uh, used to tell me about how rough the ocean would get in the southern uh, latitudes, the 40 degree southern latitudes. And that is a dangerous area to be in, even in today's modern uh, radar GPS equipped um, global navigation. Um, because you have currents meeting from the o Indian Ocean to the uh, southern Atlantic. And in fact, um, sailors being a very superstitious lot, uh, that's where the story of the Flying Dutchman originated, that ghostly ship which is condemned, doomed to wander across the ocean and is crewed by, a, by ghosts who can never return to their home port. Uh, George had uh, gotten back to Hamburg in August 1914. He received his uh, call-up notice from Kaiser Wilhelm uh, to report to the uh, German Navy Center in Kiel for induction into the U-boat service. Uh, George was very, not formally educated, but he, was, he had seen enough of the world by then to know that this, in all probability, marked one fate which would have been a watery grave. So he escaped. He went uh, south uh, into Switzerland with the German Navy police hot on his heels. Uh, he hid out the First World War in Switzerland and used the chaos of post-World War I Germany to get back to the uh, Baltic ports, I think Hamburg, where he shipped out to the United States and uh, landed here also uh, illegally. Uh, my grandmother, Elsie Fossold, was born also in the Hamburg region in 1894 a little town called Stade, which is about 10 kilometers east of Hamburg. That's uh, uh, six miles. 
it is now part of greater metropolitan Hamburg. And in order to, to dis escape a, a dangerous situation, I can't go into more detail because we have little ones here. Her mother had uh, booked passage for her to New York, uh, where she was um, uh, employed first as a, a nanny and then a domestic servant to a rich family up in the uh, Upper East Side in the uh, Yorkville area of Manhattan, which is, uh, was at the time a predominantly German-American neighborhood. She stayed in that service, uh, that household, for 15 years. And on the day of her departure, the lady of the house wanted to reward her. So the lady of the house took my grandmother up to the, uh, the uh, master bedroom in this, this elegant townhouse, uh, where she had never been, incidentally. And took, the lady of the house took my grandmother to her vanity and said, you can have your choice of any of the items on the vanity. Well, my grandmother, being from rather humble origins, still had this idea of class inferiority. So she took what she thought was the least valuable piece of, of uh, I don't know how to put it, cosmetic um, uh, accessories that were on the vanity. It was just a little ceramic pot used to hold facial powder. We still have that. My mother still has that. And incidentally, she took it to an episode of the PBS show Antiques Roadshow in, in Nashville where she found out that that little ceramic piece actually came from the court of Louis XVI of France. <laughs> its current value is somewhere between $5,000 and $7,500, and we would not be surprised maybe to think that, you know, maybe Marie Antoinette used it to powder her face. Um, so in any case, my, uh, my grandparents uh, met each other. They got married. They became U.S. citizens in 1926 and settled in Summit, New Jersey, where George started his own business as a wallpaper hanger. Elsie uh, basically was the typical housefrau. Uh, they had two children, one of whom obviously my mother and my uncle Stephen. Uh, following his, his formal um, naturalization as a citizen, or they actually had two very different ways of looking at things. My grandfather didn't want anything more to do with Germany and, and would not have anything to do with anything German. He did not, for example, accompany my grandmother when she visited Germany in 1932, just prior to uh, the rise of Adolf Hitler. Uh, and in fact, he wouldn't even go out to watch the airship Hindenburg as it came across Summit, New Jersey on its way down to Lakehurst. And this was the big event when the Hindenburg was coming. Everybody would come out of the out of their homes and look at the giant airship with its silvery gray paint reflecting the sun and the, hate to say it, the swastikas on the rear tail fins. The rise of National Socialism caused great problems for my grandfather because in the U.S. at that time, there was a National Socialist sympathetic organization known as the German-American Bund. I don't know how many people have heard about this or have maybe studied it in school. But it was a National Socialist sympathetic organization which sought to portray uh, National Socialism as being more acceptable to the American mindset. Um, and in fact, they had a huge camp for their followers not far from uh, Summit in uh, Union County, New Jersey. The camp itself was known as Camp Nordland. It was in Essex County, New Jersey, which, as if you're familiar with northern New Jersey, is not very far away, and it did attract some, some attention from the government. Um, one of the things that the German-American Bund 
uh, tried to do was to uh, tell people the truth about Franklin Roosevelt, that he actually had changed his name. It was real not Roosevelt at all. It was actually Rosenfeld, and he was promoting this secret Jewish agenda to take over the world. I'm really glad this doesn't happen these days, that we've grown up enough to, to not make <laughs> slurs about our president uh, and his ethnicity. Um, and of course, with the, with the uh, declaration of war uh, by Germany on America, December 11th, 1941, this did raise the paranoia and concerns to new heights. Now, a lot of people in this country still hold that World War II for the United States it was the good war. We didn't suffer, we weren't bombed, uh, we weren't invaded. Everybody pulled together and you see these, these images of Rosie the Riveter and we can do it and everybody was united and if you believe that I got a bridge I want to sell you. Uh, people know, for example, about the internment of Japanese Americans uh, for uh, no other crime. They were guilty of no other crime than looking different than their white Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, uh, fellow citizens. But there were also internment camps for German-Americans and Italian-Americans. Approximately 16,000 German-Americans were interned in Texas, as well as about 3,300 Italian-Americans. And it didn't help matters any when in early 1942, two teams of German saboteurs were landed on American soil. Uh, they didn't get very far. One of, the, one of the leaders had a change of heart and went to the FBI to turn the others in. And the FBI didn't believe them at first, and the guy had to show up repeated times, and it wasn't until he had produced um, incendiary devices made to look like fountain pens that the FBI sat up and took notice. And if you're really interested in learning what, how this was all discovered, uh, Google uh, uh, something known as Operation Pastorius. And I can talk more about that when we have the coffee hour. So um, to make a very long story shorter, uh, my grandparents became persons of interest to the FBI. And every week, uh, an FBI agent would drive out to my grandparents' house in Summit and start asking questions. What have you been doing the past week? Where have you gone? Uh, who have you associated with? How long have you known these people? Now, for my grandfather, who considered himself a solid American citizen, who would have nothing to do with Germany, this was an utter insult, a, a gross slap in the face. And he was very tempted to tell the FBI man exactly where he could go and what he could do with his questionnaire. You didn't do this in uh, World War II in, in, on the home front of America. The FBI was paramount. And if you had acted if one had acted in such a way as to annoy them, it would come back to haunt you. And so my grandmother, being the more practical person, devised a strategy. She literally would turn away the problems uh, with kindness. Now, on the home front in World War II, many consumer goods were rationed. Meat was rationed, gasoline was rationed, shoes were rationed, you could only get one pair of shoes per year. But the thing that people really wanted was coffee. Coffee, you couldn't get coffee because coffee came from Latin America and South America. It had to come into the U.S. by ship and because of the U-boat activity off the coast, many times that just would not get through. 
So you were rationed coffee. Coffee was rationed. And so what my grandmother first did was to start holding back on the amount of coffee she would use for the week so she could offer the FBI man a cup or two of hot, steaming black coffee. The second uh, strategy was also revolved around food. It was a stroke of luck, really, because one of the people who came to visit the house, my grandparents' household, was a friend of theirs who was a widower. Uh, he owned a meat market in Summit. And in those days, there were no supermarkets like you have a giant up there at Blair Plaza. If you wanted meat, you went to the meat market. If you wanted a produce, you went to the greengrocer. And if you wanted milk, if you didn't have it delivered to your house, you, you went to the dairy store and you got your milk and your butter and your eggs. So anyway, this guy was a widower. He was lonely. And every Monday, he'd come to my grandparents' house to play pinochle. And he would bring with him a, a cut of meat, a roast or, or maybe some chops or something along those lines, just to thank my grandparents for uh, taking care of his, his loneliness and providing some, him some companionship. And one time he bought, uh, uh, I think it's like a, a, a rolled roast. You don't see the cut very often these days, but back you know, 60, 70 years ago, this was pretty standard. And my grandmother thanked him for his generosity, and the guy said, oh, it's nothing. You ought to see the bribes I have to pay to the OPA so-and-sos just to stay in business. Uh, the OPA was the Pro Office of Price Administration, and it was a federal government program designed to combat uh, price gouging in a time of scarcity. So anyway, she would save that roast for the day when the FBI man would come out and, and would say, gee, you look so tired. Have a nice cup of coffee. Are you, are, you, are you eating well? Would you like to sit down and have dinner with us? And so as the time went on, the FBI guy would come in and, and, and oh, I don't have to ask you any questions if I could get maybe another cup of coffee and a nice roast. So he ate well, and he had his coffee at least one day of the week. And as far as I'm aware, my grandparents' FBI records remain, remained clean until their death. Coffee, the great American connector. We have one more story this morning, and I'd like to invite Katrina Gassner to come forward and share her story with us. All right. Um, I came to the United States in 1988. It was really hard for my parents to get a U.S. visa for me to come. They, okay. they came to Guatemala City to bring me home to the United States. We all went to the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala City to get the visa, and the embassy could not find it. We tried three days, just three days. They still did not find the visa at all. My dad called his best friend who worked at the State Department. Julius Coles solved the problem about the visa and finally got my visa to came to the United States to live with my family. My trouble was not over at all. A few years later, my parents applied to get U.S. citizenship for me. They were notified that the citizenship certificate was ready. My mother went to the immigration office in Arlington to pick up the certificate. She waited for two hours in line and they told her that they did not have the certificate. That was bad. She asked for the supervisor and was told that she could not speak to them at all. <laughs> that was another bad thing. <laughs> 
She was very upset and got into the elevator and started to cry. And she did not know what to do. Suddenly, a woman standing behind her heard her crying, and the lady who worked at immigration tapped her on the shoulder and said, Miss Carol, what's wrong? What happened? My mother turned around and saw a woman that she knew as a pan from Oyster, and where I went to Oyster School as well. My mother explained the problem. The Oyster parents took my mother to where the people were working, and they went to many offices until she found my citizenship certificate. My mother signed the citizenship certificate right away because she did not want to wait for a ceremony. She was afraid that immigration might lose the certificate again. <laughs> Finally, I got my citizenship and had a celebration party. Yay! <laughs> I'm glad that my parents had friends to help them. Now I have a U.S. passport and I can travel to most countries in the world. Once you are a citizen, you do not have to deal with immigration. And I'm so happy about that. America has been called a melting pot with all our differences melting away into one big stew. Or a tossed salad, each of us keeping our essential cucumberness or carrotness, even while together we make something more delicious. I like the image of America as a quilt, pieced together over generations and centuries. Each little piece of the quilt is its own story, a story of how we came to this country. For some of us, that story is full of bravery and excitement, and we are proud to tell it. For others, the story is one of loss and betrayal, carrying a sense of sadness. Those of us who are African Americans are likely to have ancestors who didn't choose to come to this country at all, who came here as slaves torn from their homelands. Others of us have ancestors who came as indentured servants or were forced to run away from our home countries because of wars. And of course, some of us have ancestors who were here in the first place, Native Americans who saw their own homeland destroyed. We didn't all choose to be part of this country, but somehow we got here, or our grandparents got here, or our great-great-great-grandparents got here. We added our own story to that quilt, making it more colorful, more beautiful, and more like America. I want to invite you now just quickly to think of your own stories, perhaps the ones that came to mind when Mary invited you into the meditation earlier this morning. What are the stories that your family tells? What stories will you make sure to tell your children? And what are the values that are beneath those stories? Do they show how your family is courageous or resilient or adventurous? How your family is caring or funny or resourceful? If you have a story to share briefly, I would invite you to raise your hand and Mary will bring the microphone around to you. We'll have time for just a few right now and then I hope you'll continue to tell stories during our coffee hour after platform service. <laughs> 